Hello and welcome. I'm Trumpet Man, and you're listening to the 40 Card College Podcast, a podcast about advancing your limited game, whether you're a first-time drafter or a trophy master. So everyone, I want to officially welcome you to 2023, another year of podcasting here upon us. And uh, so we're going to just jump right in. Um, this week, I'm going to talk be talking more about Brothers War, specifically how to approach the deck building section. I think when Brothers War, when you're focusing on like the draft, the deck building, the gameplay, I think a lot of the format gets lost in the deck building phase because there's so many options. What do we do about that? So today's topic is going to be helping like, wow, there's so many playables. How do you distill all of that into, you know, the 23, 24, 25 cards you end up putting in your deck? And what exactly is that going to look like? So that's the plan for today. Uh, but first, before we jump in, the Patreon. So a quick word on the Patreon. Um, we are completely listener-supported here at 40 Card College, so I, I do want to say thank you so much to all the patrons who are already supporting this project. Um, if you've, you know, been listening for a little while now, you feel like you've, you know, leveled up, learned a few things, want to get back to the show in any way, the Patreon is there for you at patreon.com slash 40 Card College. There's things like draft log review on a weekly basis, and group classes, even all the way up to coaching sessions. So again, check that out if uh, that's something you think you might be interested and find a tier that's right for you. Before going to the main topic this week, we are going to look at a question of the week. So question of the week is a benefit for patrons. They can post directly in the Discord and then I answer the questions directly on the show. Uh, no question this week from the Discord. So again, I've created my own, uh, but looking forward to answering a patron question in the future. So the question I came up for this week, since we are at the start of 2023, our question here is what set am I most looking forward to in 2023? So looking through uh, all the sets coming out this year, uh, we have, of course, uh, Frexia will be one just coming out next month. Then we have I think it's March of the Machine, which is some more kind of Dominaria stuff. But then we're switching on over. And so actually, quarter three, uh, there is a direct to modern set in paper, which is a Lord of the Rings theme set, which seems really, really cool. And it's going to be an alchemy set online with just the exact same card, supposedly. Um, I think that'll be interesting to see, like the Lord of, Lord of the Rings theming on top of like it's already, you know, fantasy themed. So it makes perfect sense to just tie that right into magic. Um, also, at the end of the year, Wilds of Eldraine. That might be interesting as well. But uh, my pick for something I'm most excited to see this year is going to be that Lord of the Rings set, exactly how that comes together. So we'll have to wait and see till the second half of this year to be able to uh, actually get our hands on that. But it looks pretty cool. Jumping right in today here into our main topic, as I was saying, deck building itself can be pretty complex in Brothers War. Oftentimes, because of all the colorless cards, um, it can be kind of tough to navigate the draft uh, to figure out exactly what your lane actually is. But then once you're sitting down to deck build, you have to kind of figure out, um, you know, are you splashing a color? What are your primary colors? Um, obviously, you want to have that all figured out during the draft, but sometimes because of the open nature of the artifacts itself, it can be kind of hard to figure out, well, what exactly is my deck doing and what exact cards am I going to be playing um, before you actually jump into the games themselves. So what I thought I would do today is we're going to go through all of that. 
Um, and then also at the very end, just also end on uh, what the most underrated and overrated cards are at this point for the commons and uncommons, because there have been some changes there since we last did that um, over a month ago. So first off, I really want to hit this idea of looking at the cards you've drafted as your pool for deck building. And you sometimes will come down to the to the deck build from the draft portion with some kind of preconceived notions of what exactly it is that you're going to be wanting to put into your deck. And that can be a little bit of a danger because if you go into the deck build and you're like, I'm red, black sacrifice and you have your red and black cards, but you just force that to be your deck and you go into your games without kind of looking at, well, exactly how many sacrifice pieces did I get? Um, how deep on the sacrifice train am I? Should I really be more of like a red, black midrange deck or just more like a red, black aggro deck with combat tricks? Obviously, the cards you've drafted are really going to dictate that. But it really comes down to what I'll call core components of your deck and supporting components of your deck. So I kind of want this to be the big takeaway that we think about when deck building, what are the core pieces versus the support pieces? Because they can often change drastically based on the exact composition of cards you've gotten. And so I kind of want to define core cards. And so what I mean by core cards are these are the key pieces of a deck that are going to hold everything together at the end of the day when you go to play your games. Like, these are the playables that you're not going to end up cutting, and they're really what your deck is all about. Um, they could be, like, the power cards, or they could be, like, what your theme or synergy is. So usually the core pieces are going to be maybe between, like, 10 and 15 cards. When there's fewer core pieces to your deck, it's because your deck is more based on power itself. And so... You know, your first through third picks, first through fourth picks, those are going to be kind of your core cards because they just have the most power. And you're not as, you know, worried about synergistically combining different pieces together. Whereas sometimes when you have core pieces and a lot of them, it's because all those pieces are kind of working together like in a synergistic web. And so oftentimes they're the core itself. Each individual card, there's going to be a lot more of them because they're all accentuating each other. So when you start to strip away some of those synergistic components from the core itself, then all the cards weaken. So when you are building, whether it's a synergistic aggro deck or like, you know, more mid-range deck with a ton of combos, whatever it happens to be, be aware of, are my core components of my deck based on powerful individual cards? Or are the core pieces more about synergistic engines and that's going to let you know then what supporting pieces are going to uh, be around and envelop those core cards for the final pieces because if you can nail down what exactly it is you're trying to achieve with your deck based on those 10 to 15 cards of sort of that core strategy it's much easier to figure out what other supporting cast you want for the last you know 8 to 12 cards to round out your playables so the supporting cards, those are those other ones where you're looking at, okay, if your deck is built purely on power, what are the supporting cards that are going to help you get to those cards or enable strategies to make sure you can play your power cards? For example, if you have a really expensive, powerful rares, your supporting pieces might be card draw to help you get to those expensive rares, cheap interaction to help you get to the late game for that. Um, 
if your core is just built around a lot of two-for-one exchanges, then your supporting cast might be, you might need some mana fixing so that you can cast all your cards. We saw this a lot with Dominator United, where the support itself was a lot of mana fixing. Um, you know, you might even have played something like a Salvage Mana Worker, that two-mana one-three, that just allows you to cast your cards. Um, that would be a support piece to help enable the core of your deck itself. So in Brothers War, a lot of the two-color themes are going to be the core themselves, like blue-white soldiers. Um, a lot of the core there is just going to be the creatures and making sure you have enough flying threats or enough of the soldier pieces for your payoffs. If you happen to have some of the more higher rarity cards that care about soldiers, the core of a blue-white deck is going to be much more soldier-based, where if you don't have the higher rarities, but for some reason you end up in the, the blue-white lane and you just have a lot of evasion then the core itself is going to be just the flyers and then the soldier doesn't matter as much and so more of your support is punching through flyers versus supporting you know maybe having a few uh, weaker soldiers in a more soldier centric deck so that's really the piece is that if you understand what your core is then your support pieces look different to that um, and something that could we could go through that would probably take you know, way more than one episode is looking at every single um, archetype and then all the different iterations and what those core pieces are. But really, my impetus for creating this particular episode is to kind of give you the tools for you then to think about what those core pieces are versus supporting so that you can start to look at that. So I'm kind of talking about, you know, the blue white soldiers. But if I give another example, um, if we talk about let's say the, you know, a white-black deck. Well, again, the white-black theme in uh, Brothers War is about mana cost three or less. So if you happen to really go down that road and you have a couple recommissions, you have the Hero of the Dunes that are going to allow you to bring back those creatures and pump them um, that are cheaper, you have the Warlords League to enable that, then suddenly that is your core. Um, and then your support might actually be ways to be able to find more of those creatures uh, that costs three or less. More, uh, you might include some more trinkety artifacts that you might not include normally that cost three or less that you can bring back um, with that. And so in that way, uh, you're trying to support that engine. Also, you're looking at what are the kind of fringe cards that like are not what your deck is about, but are going to enable you to enact that plan. So the three cost or less deck often is looking to just trade off resources and then be able to bring those creatures back to be able to finish the game. Well, what enables sort of trading off, bring those resources back, putting them in the graveyard? Suddenly you have support pieces like Ravenous Gigamole. If you want to play a lot of creatures already, the Gigamole might be a supporting enabler to that core engine. If you didn't play the Gigamole, your deck would still function fine. But the Gigamole suddenly is going to enable that. Whereas if we look at the Gigamole in a different example, like let's say we were looking at a black green deck that was really about dumping all 18 creatures into the graveyard um, to maybe power up overwhelming remorses or um, just fueling uh, sort of a late game grindy plan, suddenly the Gigamole would no longer be a support piece, like it might be in maybe like a 14-15 creature deck in white black, to actually being a core piece in the black green deck so that helps contextualize what cards can we not cut because they're central to 
this deck's theme and identity versus the supporting pieces that you can then fill in for the rest. I sort of mentioned um, Overwhelming Remorse. It's a card you probably would never cut because it's, you know, a key piece to any deck because it is that answer all removal in this set. But its role is important to understand where, like, is it core to your game plan to be able to use this Overwhelming Remorse uh, to, like, as as part of fueling your graveyard and then using it to punch through really quickly? Like, is it core in that way? It can be useful to understand what the cards are doing, even if you're not going to be cutting them. But then, of course, there are um, different cards that can be core in some decks and supporting in other decks. I think a good one would be um, Moment of Defiance, right? That's the two in a black, give something uh, plus two, plus one, and lifelink and draw a card. And that card is core oftentimes to the blue-black decks, or even could be, you know, sometimes black-red decks as well, that have a lot of the draw-to synergies. And so if it's core to that, you're not going to want to cut that card as long as you're playing enough of those other synergies. But what you want to see is, like, if you have, let's say, a pocket of cards, like, let's say you have four or five cards total that care about this draw-to plan, if that's really what your deck is about, then you've identified those pieces together as being core to your deck, then that means the uh, moment of defiance is also going to be core. But if you suddenly realize that, you know what, I have too many five drops, so I shouldn't be playing this trench stalker anyways, because I only have a few ways to enable it, suddenly that might be a sub theme to your deck. And you could actually maybe cut the trench stalker, but then that means the moment of defiance also was not a core piece. And so you want to probably cut it at that point, too, to make room for other things that are more what your deck is about. Like maybe maybe you're more about sacrificing or maybe you're more about pushing damage with Whirling Strike uh, or clearing the way with Excavation Explosion to ramp into five drops that happen to be artifacts like Misha's Juggernaut. So if you happen to do that, you're less interested in the Trench Stalker. You're going to cut it from your deck because it's, it's really more of just a niche piece that you don't want to enable. So hopefully, again... This gives you an idea of what I mean by core versus support. And so once you've nailed down sort of the 10 to 15 cards that fit into either, these are my most powerful cards, how do I support them? Um, what does my curve look like? Um, what interacts best with my powerful cards? And how do I make those cards even better? Um, or you go the other way where it's like very synergy driven. Um, I want everything that says sacrifice in it in red black how many blast runners can i play that's my core i have you know the four blast runner deck and i want to be sacrificing something every single turn um in those decks um you're going to be wanting to look to you you might be playing like an elsewhere flask in that deck even though you don't have any of the like corrupts or anything else to be able to enable it because it happens to be a sacrifice piece so there it would be really supporting your core, but you wouldn't play it in a different deck, like a different red-black deck, if you didn't have those other components. So you want to be thinking, again, it's just, this is a different framework for why do I want to be playing these cards? And if I cut certain cards from my deck, because you're going to have to do that in deck building. If you have 30 playables and you're cutting down, you know, to 24 playables and 16 lands, which, which six pieces are you cutting? It can be helpful to think about like what are those fundamental pieces in the first place and then building around those. And if you happen to realize that some of those cards you thought were fundamental to your deck 
if you start to cut those as well, you're going to have to cut different corresponding support pieces. It's especially true in Brothers War because it is so synergy driven amongst all the pieces that you want to be thinking about that. And just to contextualize all of these thoughts, I thought it would be useful. I already mentioned the Gigamol, but I thought it would be useful to use all of the mill creatures as a way of thinking about them as core pieces versus support pieces, because there's some of the standouts that I think are most on either the chopping block if they're not really core to your deck. And then also as support, sometimes they still get there, but also could be cut from your deck. So if we just think about it really briefly, so these are the mill creatures, the Airlift Chaplain, Falaji Archaeologist, Gigamol, Tomical Scrapsmith, and Branchwood Prowler. All of these are the, the mill three, and then you get something off of them. So if you have what they're looking for, if you have eight hits in your deck, it's 50%. Okay, you're 50% to hit there versus just getting the counter. 50% not great. Obviously, you're not going to play these cards with eight hits. But if you get up to 14 hits, suddenly 74%, and 18 hits is 84%. That's just the hypergeometric math that you can run pretty quickly through the hypergeometric calculator. But additionally, uh, oftentimes, one of the reasons you're playing these creatures is because you have a lot of unearth. So if you have five unearth creatures, you're 33% to hit an unearth creature in that mill three. So you might be playing a Branchwood Prowler to try to get lands off of it because you really care about that. But if you also have five unearth creatures, you're 33% to flip one of those uh, in the three. Um, and so it can really power it up from there as well. So the more unearth creatures you have and the more you care about the key fundamental component you're getting off of uh, the mill creature, the more it is core to your deck, of course. And so it makes sense, uh, you know, just logically, the more you have of something, the more they all kind of go together, the more of those core pieces you're going to have. I mean, it's nothing new that I'm saying today, but it just lets you know, like, whether or not that's something you're interested in. So if we think about Branchwood Prowler, so we started there, right? The the one green, one one, the mill three, and it gets lands. Well, if your deck is really interested in always hitting your land drops or really interested in graveyard shenanigans, this card can be core to your deck, especially if you hit that kind of 14 hit benchmark, that 74% to hit a land. Now, of course, it's it's going to be more like 16, 17 usually because that's how many lands you're playing. So it's going to be even better than that. But then, so, so it can be core to your deck if you care about those pieces and you have enough unearth. So then it, it is that core piece. However, if you don't really care about hitting land drops, but you just happen to have a few unearth creatures, you happen to have a couple graveyard synergies, consider, hey, I'm already playing a lot of two drops in this deck. Do I care about Branchwood Prowler? Do I have other combos with it, like Sidenal Stalwart, to have another cheap creature in play that I can turn it into an extra mana by tapping with my Stalwart? There, in that situation where it's less fundamental to trying to make sure you hit land drops to hit, you know, five, six, seven whatever expensive drops in your deck um, and you don't have that many synergies with it, it is going to be more of that support piece. And so then to consider whether or not this is a card you want to keep in your deck versus cutting, you can look at what is it everything that Branchwood Prowler is offering this deck. You know, first of all, we're looking at can you can you maybe shave a land with it to get, uh, you know, an extra creature in there. If you already have another five or six two drops, do you need to be playing Branchwood Prowler? Like, if it's just some random creature in your red-green beatdown deck and you don't care about the lands as much off of it, maybe playing, you know, more two-mana three ones 
because your deck is more aggressive, is going to be a lot better. I mean, the Branchwood Prowler would be probably fine in that deck, but it is going to be more of an ancillary role player versus your green-black, you know, graveyard, unearth, skyfisher, spider deck. When it, when you sort of use all the parts of the Buffalo or all the parts of the Prowler in this case, then obviously it's going to be a core piece there, right? Another one, we talked about the Gigamole already, where it's going to be sort of core in some aspects, again, usually in black green but it could also be more of a supporting role player and maybe like a black white deck or you know especially in like let's say blue black right if we think about blue black ravenous gigamole not really what blue black is about because it has that draw to theme so then you have to ask yourself okay what is it that the gigamole is supporting you know it might be a fine role player if you happen to have some combat couriers to go find that are going to then enable the draw to theme like if i have two combat couriers there yeah, I might play the Gigglemore in my blue-black deck because it's going to be a nice place on the curve to then hopefully mill some of my unearthed creatures that those pieces are core to my deck. The Gigglemore is just supporting that. However, if I did cut it, it would be fine. It's not really that important. So again, kind of look at what is it that it's serving. Just because you could play it and it would do something decent, is that better than something else that you could play in its spot? Maybe you would want to play some interactive piece instead of just another creature in that spot you might want to be playing like let's say a machine over matter rather than the gigamole the gigamole is going to be good but if you need some interaction instead machine over matter and gigamole in blue black those both could be support pieces to your overall plan and different decks are going to be looking for different cards i could see a blue black deck that wants the gigamole over the machine over matter and vice versa. And that's really what I'm getting at with the supporting role versus the core pieces. Um, if you happen to obviously have more artifact creatures, the machine over matter gets better. Uh, the more aggressive you are, the better the machine over matter gets. The more mid-range controlling-ish you are, with the gigamole gets better. If your deck is built around trench stalker and then drawing a bunch of cards and you happen to have more combat couriers, the ravenous gigamole is going to be better. Okay, so that's just one example where we're deciding between these two cards for maybe that last slot for a support in a hypothetical deck. Those are the thought processes you want to be thinking about. If we go to Airlift Chaplain, it's kind of an interesting one because it's almost always a great card. You're going to have a lot of planes. You're going to have a lot of cheap uh, three or less cards to hit with the Airlift Chaplain. But it's kind of an interesting one because it's almost never core to a deck. I would say it might be core to... Uh, a deck if you have again a lot of unearth and then also maybe caring about the three or less theme but it's always just a fine card and so it's one of those ones where it's it's kind of a support piece but it's just there because of it's al almost always good enough it's one of the better commons in in the set overall so you're basically never cutting it but then you kind of want to be thinking about like what other core pieces you're going to have that it accentuates or how is it playing its role in your deck um because Again, it's probably almost going to always make your deck, but it also is never really like the centralized piece unless you do have, let's say you have some recommissions, you have those types of pieces that are going to power up the chaplain, then all of a sudden it is sort of that essential role player. And so what I would say is that when it when it is more essential, your deck is built more around that you, and you need less supporting pieces to help the chaplain itself. Versus if your deck is more like a red-white 
let's say beatdown deck that you're just playing chaplain in, you have a couple unearth creatures, but not like that much, whatever. Um, in those cases, you're not really thinking so much about the chaplain, but you're thinking about, okay, I've got these other strong bulls. I have these uh, artifacts. I, I'm trying to attack. And then at some point in the game, I'm going to play a chaplain based on the way the game is going. And so it helps you kind of think about your opening hands and what you're trying to achieve with a card. So again, even if you're not cutting the card, what is it what is it doing this game in this deck differently from deck to deck, even though it's the exact same card? And I, I particularly like these mill creatures themselves because they are very different cards under very different situations, right? Um, if we look at Thalaji Archaeologist, this is probably the best example in terms of being core versus support. Um, you might be playing the Archaeologist just as a random value creature that just is a little bit of a wall in a supporting deck that just happens to have, you know, 10 plus hits for the Archaeologist. It comes down early, it blocks pretty well, it has a pretty decent win win percent, more on that later. But also the Archaeologist could be very, very core to your deck. If you're playing more of like an almost mono blue deck where you're really trying to find as many Mightstone animations and Machine Over Matters as possible, suddenly Thalaji Archaeologist is core to that strategy. And so when you draw it and you're playing it on turn two, it's part of your game plan that you really care about what it's hitting and that you built around it in a way that you're always getting value off of it and setting up specific engines with the archaeologist. Maybe in some decks you're even comboing it, the uh, statue plus, plus the Might Stones animation. And it's it's a core piece, the archaeologist, to help find both pieces of your combo so you're hitting with a giant flying statue, right? So in that way, the archaeologist is a fantastic example, whereas sometimes... You might be playing in blue-red, and it doesn't really matter what the archaeologist is finding for you. It's not really that essential. But if you happen to have enough blue-red spells and you're kind of this third-path iconoclast deck, it helps support that plan when you have enough hits. Like, you know, like I said, 10-plus hits. It's a card that you're going to include in your deck. It's going to be pretty decent, but it's not what you're basing your game plan around. So if you have it in your opening hand it's less important that it, it hits a car, a key card on turn two when you play it, when it is the supporting role, because it's not going to be what the game is about. Whereas, again, in sort of those more maybe mono-blue strategies, without the archaeologist, you're not finding all your pieces, you're not gumming up the ground, and so you're not sort of propelling your game plan forward. It's not a core piece there. The last one I would say um, is uh, Tomical Scrapsmith. The two red uh, creature that mills and finds artifacts. So Tomical Scrapsmith is almost always going to be a support piece. And part of the reason is that for it to be a core piece, you have to have so many artifacts and you have to care about unearth. But oftentimes it's going to be grabbing an unearth creature just because you flip the unearth creature itself. And so you're going to be putting that in your hand versus... Um, actually milling the unearthed creature. You'd have to kind of double hit in that, which brings the percent of doing so really far down. And so because of that, it's hard to actually build a plan around the Scrapsmith and getting value that way. And so it has to be a card that, yeah, if you need a three drop, it can be a two one that sometimes um, is going to be able to find an artifact. It can be kind of a two for one there, but the body's not that impressive. So it's never a card that you're like, 
this, even when you have a lot of artifacts, it can be still be on the chopping block because the power is not really there. The, the spot on the curve, it's not really as important as maybe like um, a branch root prowler on two mana or the archaeologist on two or really digging to a key piece like a gigamole might. So the scrapsmith, it could be, it's almost always supporting. And then the more artifact bombs you have, the more likely you're going to play the scrapsmith. So the scrapsmith, you're not like, wow, it's core to my deck. But if I happen to have some some artifact bombs, like um, you got the uh, Steel Seraph Flying Angel, the six mana prototype creature that gives flying lifelinker vigilance. If you happen to have that card in your deck, suddenly Scrapsmith, if you happen to have, you know, enough hits for it, it might be a supporting role to help find your bombs. But in a, in a slightly different deck where your core piece, you don't have that bomb artifact to go find, even though you have a lot of artifacts, you might realize you know what, Scrapsmith is going to be a 2-1 body for 3 that happens to find an artifact, but do I want to be spending 3 mana just to play a 2-1? Sometimes the answer might be yes if you're really just trying to play, you know, 2-for-1s and sort of to the long game. But sometimes it might be no where that value engine that the Scrapsmith provides is just not something you're really interested in. You might have 15 artifacts in your deck, and it's hard to imagine such a deck where a lot of those don't have on Earth, but let's say for some reason you had a 15 artifact deck and you only had a couple unearthed creatures. Scrapsmith might still be on the chopping block there, even though, you know, the numbers all work for it. Um, just because it itself is weak enough as a support card that it's not going to provide enough to your deck, the core of your deck, for it to warrant that supporting role. Whereas all of a sudden, again, if you even, you know, even if you had the one angel we talked about, the artifact angel, that being the power piece of your core strategy, suddenly Scrapsmith, as that supporting role, suddenly becomes very, very valuable to it. And so you're going to want to put that into your deck to enable finding that card. Okay, um, so that's sort of uh, the mini topic on core versus support. It might be something that we could think about in the future, framing it in terms of the archetypes. The reason behind this podcast was I was thinking about, you know, when I'm building my decks, what are the cards that I always want to play in Brothers War? Because there's so many cuttable cards. And if you just kind of throw cards in your deck at random, you can often end up without a plan. And so understanding what your plan is first, what those core cards are, allows you to find the supporting roles and is the reason why sometimes you're going to play a card versus another. And it's also another reason why you really want to spend time in the deck building process, especially in Brothers War. Um, like, slow down with it and really think through all the iterations. Because what often happens is when you remove a piece you thought was core but was actually support, it changes what other supporting cards you want to play. So for every one or two cards you remove, it actually is sort of a cascading effect that changes you know, the final cards you want to play quite drastically. I had an interesting example even on stream this past week where I was playing this Goblin Blast Runner in, um, I believe it was a white-red deck, and I was in the build process, and, you know, I had a decent number of sacrifice cards, and I the more I was looking at the deck, the, the more I realized, like, actually Blast Runner didn't belong, which was kind of like surprising to me at the time but i realized you know what i only have like four or five sacrifice cards and the random one two if it's not turning into the three two it just it's not worth playing i ended up cutting that card and i went through the build process and kept going along with what i was doing and i was having trouble figuring out the last cut then i realized 
you know, Mishra's bobble was in the deck. And the main reason that it was there was because it was sort of this, you know, all around card that did something, but it was good with the blast runner. Once I had cut the blast runner, um, which was sort of this, I thought, key piece to like cheap aggression, sort of sacrifice synergy going on. It was actually a supporting role in the deck that I hadn't identified as not being core. Then suddenly the Mishra's Bobble is no longer as valuable. And I could cut it because it didn't actually do anything with the rest of my deck. It was just the zero mana artifact that was always going to be fine. But fine is often not good enough. And especially when you're trying to like really hone in those last few cards, the best you can do is ask like ask your cards, ask your deck to to provide more than it was doing before. So if a card just seems fine and it's not really providing a role, then that might be what you want to be doing in terms of cutting those cards. I think my perfect example and why it's a card that I almost never play is Deadly Repost. It's the uh, one and a white deal three to the target tap creature you gain two. That card is almost just always fine, Um, but it's bad when you're aggressive and white's often aggressive. And so that's why it's almost always on the chopping block. Deadly Repost is never going to be a core card in your deck because it doesn't fit any of the themes of the set. The set doesn't care about spells. And so unlike Dominar United, maybe there, like, white-blue spells was a deck, so every once in a while that type of card could actually be core to your deck. Whereas Deadly Repost in Brothers War is always just a card you could play, but often, if your deck is good enough or you got enough good cards, should be one of the cards you're looking to cut if you need a supporting card where you just need to be able to interact some way okay you could play it but again when you're thinking about what does my deck need as you draft it deadly repost should not be the card you're looking towards whereas if we look at uh another removal spell if we look at static net which just has great numbers it's one of the best on commons in the set that card's actually always just going to be core to your deck because based on power level alone it's even more core to your deck when you can use the power stones And so if you get the static nets and you start to get some ambush paratroopers and those start to gel together, right, you can sort of build and expand upon that. And you might think about, okay, well, how am I supporting those different cards? Um, And it might mean that you need less types of interaction like Deadly Repose, so it gets the axe. And you might be more inclined to play something like a Takasia's Onulet, which would be usually a supporting role. But if you happen to have more power stones, and be more sort of this white mana intensive mid-range deck, then the Onulet might get a pass where it doesn't in a different deck. And so that's how you can think about like, yeah, Static Net is a core card based on power level alone, but also if I'm thinking about everything that it provides, which supporting pieces am I going to include because this other card is in my deck? Um, And that can help you think about those cards differently. So hopefully all of this is making sense. Again, it's kind of an easy concept. You want to be building around the cards you have. But when you stop to actually think about it, you can realize that all these complex interactions going on in your deck are easy to miss if you don't take time to think about what it is you're prioritizing. And so that's really the main message from today's podcast. So hopefully that helps you. I know that framing in that way has helped me a lot recently and something that I'm trying to think more about as I draft. All right, before we leave today... Uh, I want to just kind of update on the overrated and underrated cards. And so the way I did this again is that I ranked all the cards based on the 17 land data in the set. And I looked at their average lat CNET value, which tells how valued they are by the community. So the higher the ALSA value, 
the later they're seen in the pack, which means the less prioritized they are. And then I also ranked all the cards in the set from highest to lowest win rate. So what this tells us is that underrated cards are those with the highest ELSA value, because they're taking the latest, with the highest game in hand win rate. And so I ranked the difference in all those cards. And then I can see the most underrated and overrated cards. Um, and so what I wanted to do was um, I looked at the top 10 underrated commons and uncommons. These are going to be the cards that are consistently going late with high win rates. And then overrated cards have a natural tendency to be at higher rarities. And so the overrated cards, I separated by commons and uncommons, because if we consider uncommons, rares, and mythics, they tend to be a little bit static in terms of being overrated because people play with them less often. So they stay overrated for a longer period of time because every time people in the community see the overrated card, it's not as adjusted as quickly. Whereas the underrated cards actually have changed a lot since the last time we've talked about because they, they tend to be commons that get played with a lot and people start to realize they're underrated. Those get picked a little bit higher and then some cards actually become the new underrated cards. So the way to frame this is that if you look at all the 17 land user records, um, all the decks that have been recorded, currently in Brothers War Draft, 17 lands users are winning at 55.5% win rate. So any card that's above 55.5% win rate is contributing something to that win rate overall. Anything below the 55.5% win rate is sort of dragging the win rate down of that deck. So to contextualize this, I'm going a little bit deeper than I did last time with the most underrated and overrated cards. Um, I'm going to give you the ALSA value of that card and then also the win rate so that you can start to think about like why it is the, the most um, you know underrated or overrated. So the, t the number 10 underrated card currently still is Gix's Caress, the two and a black, look at target uh, opponent's hand, take a card, and get a power stone. So its ALSA value is 7.05. And its win rate is 57.5%. So it's still bringing up win rates overall. And what this is saying is that it frequently will wheel and even go a little bit later than that. Number nine uh, is Evangel of Synthesis, the blue-black gold uncommon. It's the 2-3 that if you've drawn an extra card, it gets plus one, plus one, and menace until in a turn. Now, this one here, its also value is actually 5.45. So it has a much lower also value than the Gix's Caress but it has a corresponding much higher game-in-hand win rate of 59.9%. So the Evangel, you will have to pick higher than the Gix's Caress. However, the win rate benefit that you get from the Evangel is that much higher that it makes sense that you're going to have to take it higher than the Gix's Caress, uh, thus making it uh, the number nine spot. Now, if we go to number eight, it's Gaia's Gift. And so Gaia's Gift actually has a lower win rate than Evangel of Synthesis, but a much higher ALSA value. So Gaia's Gift is less valued by the community than Evangel of Synthesis, even though it has a, a worse it has a worse win rate, win rate, but it doesn't have enough of a worse win rate compared to the Evangel that it, it's still more underrated than the Evangel itself. So Gaia's Gift has an ALSA value of 6.37. So still, you know, pretty late. You're going to be seeing this on the wheel oftentimes. 
but it has a pretty nice whopping win rate of 58.5%. So what this tells me is that one of the major reasons to get into green right now is that you're going to see Gaia's Gifts late. Gaia's Gift is almost always a blowout. It's always a car that you're going to be wanting to think about and being like, well, if my opponent has Gaia's Gift here, I'm in trouble because if I block and they Gaia's Gift, they're going to be left with that counter. They're going to keep attacking past that and <laughs> times are going to be bad, right? Um, so you want to be in that spot where you, you happen to be the one with the Gaia's Gift. And um, so this kind of proves it being the number eight underrated um, card right now. Number seven, uh, still on the list. It, it used to be, I think, number one or number two, um, but Goblin Blast Runner is still underrated. It has the ALSA of 7.32, so it's really climbed the ranks since the start of the format, but it still has that 57.1% win rate. So it's taken extremely late, but still has a really good win rate. Slightly, very close on the numbers, but slightly more underrated is Lorance Escape. And this makes sense to me because it's a card that I still, I think, compared to the Blast Runner, there's not as much, you know, word on the street about Lauren's Escape, but actually has a really, like, it has a late position in Alsa of 7.27. So again, it's going really late. And it actually has a slightly better win rate than the Blast Runner at 57.2%. So the Lauren's Escape, again, this is actually a card, if we go back to our core and supporting discussion, Lauren's Escape will basically almost always be supporting. Where it's a card you can just play, you fit in a new curve, and it's going to be good. But if you have a ton of bombs, Lauren's Escape is actually going to be like more core to your strategy. So think about, is Lauren's Escape cuttable? Or is it something that you really want to play because you have a Siege Veteran you want to protect, but you don't have the recommission? So then suddenly Lauren's Escape is a card you really want to put in your deck. Okay, so that was number six. Number five, the most underrated card. A card I've mentioned a few times on the podcast because it's a card I keep getting uh, over and over again. Really actually quite good. Machine over matter. The one blue bounce spell, but it costs one less if you control an artifact creature. Also of 7.25 and win percent of 57.6. So if we look at Blast Runner, Lauren's Escape, Machine over matter, they're almost all in the same ALSA and win percentage range. So it's sort of like Machine over matter is sort of that reason for being blue. If we look at this here, Lauren's Escape for white, Goblin Blast Runner for red, Guy's Gift for green. They're kind of all in the same like win percent also territory. And if we round out the colors, it's kind of nice because our number four is Moment of Defiance. Uh, that combat trick, plus two, plus one in lifelink we talked about, draw card. It has an also value of 7.16 and a win percent of 58%. So if we kind of think of that, there's there's one in every color that's around the also value of seven and around sort of 57.5 to 58% win rate. So again, we have Gaia's Gift in green, Blast Runner in red, Lauren's Escape in white, Machine Over Matter in blue, Moment of Defiance in black. So if you think of all of these cards, the only one I would say would be a core card is Goblin Blast Runner. Almost all the other ones are going to be supporting cards, but they're cards that you can get late that are going to accentuate the rest of your deck. So it's kind of like the reasons to be drafting those at common is to be thinking about like, wow, these have pretty good win percents that are going to bring my win percentage up that I'm also going to be seeing late. We go to the number three underrated. This one's actually interesting. So Military Discipline, it's the single white that gives uh, an enchant creature plus one, plus O, oh, and first strike until in a turn, and then it keeps that plus one, plus O oh sticking around as the aura. So the reason it's number three underrated is actually because of its ALSA value, not its win rate. So its ALSA value is the one of the highest on this list total. So its ALSA value is 8.27. Uh, 
So it's basically always going to wheel and then some. Like you're going to see military disciplines like 11th, 12th pick pretty frequently. Um, it has a little bit lower win rate than some of these other cards. So even though it's the number third underrated, it's because of its positioning that you can basically always get one. So given the chance to take the military discipline really late versus maybe the like machine over matter, well, machine over matter actually has the higher win percent than the military discipline, even though the military discipline is more underrated, just because it goes even later than these other cards. Um, so the fact that it goes that late compared to the slightly lower win percent of 56.6% for the military discipline makes it the more underrated card. All right, we've got number two and number one left. Number two, we have Desynchronize. So Desynchronize is the four and a blue instant, and you can uh, put target creature, is it artifact two? See, this is how underrated it is. I, uh, I forgot exactly what Desynchronize even does. So Desynchronize, oh, it's any non-land permanent. So obviously I haven't played enough Desynchronizes myself lately, and uh, it's underrated for that reason, right? It actually has the highest ALSA value on this entire list at 8.65. So you're going to see this card the most frequently latest. So I, you know, from personal anecdotes, I have seen many a Desynchronize last pick, but it has a whopping 57% win rate. So almost as good a win rate as Goblin Blast Runner, but a card that you're going to get literally last, you know, quite frequently. And so Desynchronize, I think the reason it has such a good win rate is that interaction is so important in this format. And so before I was talking about how, you know, I almost never want to put Deadly Repost in a deck, the one white removal spell. It's always a support card. Desynchronize, always a support card. Not something you're like, well, I have to be playing Desynchronize. It's never going to be core to your strategy. But if you're in blue... And you can deprioritize five drops because you know you're going to get a desynchronized late because it's underrated. It means that if you are considered taking like a Koilos Rock in some spot when you could take a different blue card, you probably want to take the different blue card than the Koilos Rock because Koilos Rock is that five mana play that's going to maybe pressure your opponent, but also is kind of an interactive spell because it has flash. So if you can take the desynchronize instead later, knowing that you're probably going to get access to one or two if you want them, it means you want to not take other cards in that positioning. So knowing what the underrated cards currently in the format is going to help you a lot. So don't take your desynchronizes early. Um, they're always going to go late, but also deprioritize maybe clunky removal if you happen to be in blue because you're probably going to get it in the form of desynchronize. And, so, and also what's nice is it's a very different type of balance spell than the Machine Over Matter. They're both underrated, but you kind of do want access to both. And then the most underrated card uh, currently, and it's nice because it goes with these other blue cards we've been talking about, Falaji Archaeologist, right? I was talking about how it's sometimes core, sometimes support. The mill creature for non-creature spells. Um, so it has an also value of 8.2. So almost at the desynchronized level. But it has 57.3% win rate. So it has a good win rate and it goes really, really late, making it the most underrated card currently in Bro Draft. So if we look at this list, in terms of the colors, you've got Evangel of Synthesis, Machine Over Matter, Desynchronize, and Falaji Archaeologist all on the list. So what that tells me right now is that blue is very underdrafted and has a pretty good win rate if you're building it in this way where you're looking to draw cards and play a lot of non-creatures. So blue, and then even maybe specifically blue-black, might be a place that you can get an edge in the format right now as people are still trying to draft like the aggressive red-white decks um, and the red-black sacrifice decks. So just so that you know, 
Blue might finally be the place to be. You have to build it in the right way. But if you build your decks that are core around this like archaeologist um, strategy where you've got the machine over matters, you've got the might stones and animations, and you've got a lot of the artifacts that combo with the archaeologist going to find them, that can be a very winning strategy these days. All right. Before we end things, I also want to let you know some of the traps of the format, some of the overrated cards. If we look at the uncommons, they're largely the same traps as before. Again, because they are seen a little bit less frequently than the commons. So people play with them less often, and they think they're more powerful than they are, and they don't adjust as quickly. So again, all of these I've talked about before previously on the most uh, overrated, so kind of quickly on this one. But to contextualize it, the number five most overrated uncommon is Hulking Metamorph. Um, again, I think Hulking Metamorph is the two blue blue or prototype for uh, nine mana. Uh, it's the one that comes in and copies an artifact or a creature, and it's either a seven seven or three three depending. Now, Hulking Metamorph uh, has an also value of three point five, so it's picked very very highly, but its win rate is only fifty three point seven percent. I do believe that it's still a very good card, but people are not using it to its full list. However, it's still on this list. So if it's been on this list this entire time, maybe it's just not as good as I'm thinking it is. And so maybe I need to adjust accordingly and not pick it too highly. Because um, it's picked very highly and actually brings your win rate down. It's below average. Falaji Dragon Engine, number four. It has an also value of 4.04. Um, this is the uh, the other prototype creature, the 8-mana 5-5 Dragon, or the 3-mana 1-3 Dragon, and you can pay 2 to pump it. Um, it's just not a good card. It has an also value 4.04 and a win rate of 52.2%. So terrible win rate, picked very highly, right? Even worse win rate, number three overrated card, Swiftfoot Boots. Now this one does, people have caught on, its also value has decreased. So Swiftfoot Boots, also value of 5.12, but actually one of the worst win rates in the entire set, 45.9%. So we're talking 10% win rate hit to put Swiftfoot Boots in your deck compared to your average card. Because again, the 17 land user record is 55.5%. So 45.9% is heinously bad. Again, you don't want to ever play this card. Maybe if you have a Platinum Angel, but even then, maybe it's not even worth it. I, I probably still would, uh, but that's probably the literal only time you ever want to put this in your deck. Number two, still on the list from before, Foundry Inspector, that three mana, three two, that makes your artifacts cost one less. It has a decent win rate at 53%. Now that's still worse than the average, but not as bad as some of these other cards. But its also value is extremely high, making it the second most overdrafted uncommon. It has an also value of 2.84. So this card is being picked, you know, in the top four cards out of packs very frequently. Don't be one of those folks. Be taking your scrapwork cohorts if you want a colorless card over the Foundry Inspector. Be taking more powerful, uh, you know, color-intensive cards like uh, you know, excavation explosion or prison sentence. Don't be the one taking the foundry inspector. And then number one, still on the list here, it's good old burnished heart. Now, people are taking this a little bit lower than before. Its also value is now 3.54. However, it has a 49.9% win rate. So again, you're taking about a 5-6% average win rate worse compared to the average card with burnished heart. And it's just too slow, too clunky, not a card you basically ever want to play. So you really should never end up with Burnish Hearts in your deck because it is picked pretty aggressively at 3.54 on the Alsa, and it has a really, really bad win rate. So the only time I could ever see playing Burnish Heart is if I'm in some sort of ramp deck and it's a card I might want to get on the wheel. However, you're not going to get it on the wheel because the community at large 
really values Burnished Heart. So the best thing you can be doing is to never take Burnished Heart because if you're taking it, it probably means you're taking it too highly because it's the number one overdrafted on the common. Even more useful, hopefully, as our takeaways here, I'm going to tell you the number five or the top five overrated commons. These are cards you see again and again every single draft in and out. Okay. So the number five overrated common is Power Plant Worker. So that's the five mana four four that pumps and it's one of the Tron pieces. It has an also of 6.53. So it is taken pretty late. So that part's good. People recognize that it's not that strong but it has a win rate of 51.2%. So very, very, very below average. I think it's on this list because it's sort of the piece that grows and grows and grows once you assemble Tron. So it's probably the one that people look to play the most often. Also, it it sometimes can be, it's in that nice five mana sweet spot where if you play a three mana power stone maker, you can ramp out the power plant worker on turn four. But even in those scenarios, it's a four mana four four that can pump. And those are the only times where I think it maybe is decent. So the rest of the time, you don't really want to be putting this to your deck, and you're not always going to have it on turn four, and it's much better if you can play literally any other five-drop artifact creature. So avoid the power plant workers. I don't really think you should be going for Tron, but if you do, um, you better have a pretty good specific reason. You better be getting them relate, and you got to bring up that win percent um, around those core. I would say best to just leave it for someone else. Now, this next one is surprising to me. It's a card I've played a lot of, but actually it's ex- extremely overdrafted. So number four on the most overrated commons right now is Power Stone Fracture. The one and a black sorcery, you can sacrifice a creature artifact to destroy target creature. Now, it actually has a decent win percent, not great, 54.3%, a little worse than average. Um, but it's p- take, this card's taken very highly, and that's the reason it's on the list. It has an ALSA of 4.39. And so what this is saying is that a lot of people are trying to take their removal, they're taking it early, and... You can be in the spot where you take Power Stone Fracture before you have the payoffs, the support that it goes with, and then all of a sudden this card actually is a lot worse. If you don't have the artifacts and the creature synergies, you don't want to be putting Power Stone Fracture in your deck. So what I would say to avoid this trap, if you're in red-black sacrifice and you have those sacrifice pieces, Power Stone Fracture is quite good. It can also be quite good in white-black if you have a lot of ways to reanimate the card that you're sacrificing or getting value off of it, or if you have Icker Wellsprings. That's how you bring the win percent of this card up. But if you're taking it before you have those, just because you want interaction, that apparently is a mistake because people are taking this card early and it's underperforming. So avoid that trap by sort of flipping the script and having the payoffs before taking the fracture. And if you don't get it, find some other way to interact. Remember, desynchronize, number one underrated common. So maybe you have a blue-black deck that plays desynchronize instead. Um, also, Blue Black doesn't really want Power Stone Fracture, right? Because it doesn't have those payoffs. So there you go. Number three on the most overrated commons, Stone Retrieval Unit. Um, this is the four mana 2-3 that comes along with the Power Stone. Just not a good card. Uh, it's also is 6.38, so it's taken, you know, a little bit later. But it has a 51.1 win percent, which is really just bad. It's a card that you basically just never want to play. Now, it might be a support piece to some of the ramp strategies, but find better support. Find something better that goes with your core cards so you don't have to play the Stone Retrieval unit. Um, you know, If that ends up as your 23rd card, there could be worse things, but apparently not, not a lot worse things. <laughs> so you want to avoid if possible. This next one is one that I've been on a high horse the entire format about being a, a horrible card and the data bears it. It's Goring Warplow. Um, it has an also 4.87. So it's actually picked about as often 
as Power Stone Fracture almost. And Goring Warplat has a 52.6 win rate. So it's about 3% less than average. And people still pick it highly. And I think they pick it highly because sort of that modal death touch creature that can be something bigger later is something that excites people. And they're like, well, you know, it could be decent on turn two. It could be decent on turn six. Turns out it's just not a good card. And a lot of the reason why is that the two mana mode doesn't interact profitably with the other cheap creatures of the format. Because if if people, if your opponent has unearth, you don't want to block with a 1-1 death touch on their scrap work mutt. The trade there is not favorable because your opponent's going to get to bring back the mutt later and get value off of it. Um, or whatever other unearthed creature we're talking about. In addition, just a, a couple of the other cards that completely hose the Warplow early. You have um, Power Stone Engineer, the one white 2-1 that when it dies you get... Uh, a Power Stone token. Not a good trade. Um, you have uh, Argothian Sprite, which can't be blocked by artifact creatures. Can't tell you. The couple times I played a Warplow, my opponent plays Argothian Sprite. It's a card I actually want to trade with. You can't. And then um, there's also cards that act as two-for-ones when they come into play. You got Argothian Opportunist, the 3-2 in green. When it comes in, you get the Power Stone. If you have the going Warplow, sure, you can trade with the 3-2, but your opponent has already gotten value because they have gotten the Power Stone off of it. So, you know, note it, it's not a card you're interested in. You should not be taking War and Warplow most of the time, I don't think. Um, also, in white-black, it doesn't synergize with the cost three or less because Warplow costs six in your graveyard. So, all in all, just not a good card. But it's not number one. Number one, to kind of wrap this out here, is Gixian Skullflayer. Gixian Skullflayer has an also of six and a whopping 50.4% win rate. So you're taking a 5% win rate cut on average this compared to your average card in a deck in terms of their contributing factors. Gixian Skullflayer, the 2-3 for two and a black that grows if you have three or more creatures in your graveyard. It's taken reasonably late, but the, it just does not have a good win rate. By the time that it starts to grow, it doesn't matter. And you have to have more from two threes for three in your format. Like uh, in this format, two three for three is just not a stat line you're interested in. Um, the the blue two three for three that you can pay seven and draw two cards that has very impactful late game mana sync attached to it gixian skull flare on the other hand has it gets a plus one plus one counter on it in the late game and at that point you know people are playing flyers going over the top doing way way better things it's not going to do anything for you so really i would recommend you know the only card that i can see on the overrated commons that you still probably want to take is the power stone fracture as long as you're taking it after you have the payoffs. But Power Plant Worker, Stone Retrieval Unit, Goring Warplow, Gixian Skull Player, really just avoid these cards. The win rates are just not good. And so a bad card is bad. Uh, these ones, it's really hard to make them better. Um, and so yeah, that's my little spiel on underrated and overrated um, commons and uncommons. Okay, hopefully it helps you a little bit here. Uh, be thinking about the core and supporting pieces. Um, but it's fun to be thinking about the decks in this way. Hopefully that helps you in the rest of your Brothers Wars drafts for this format. But really, this is a concept that we can apply to future formats as well and really start to think about um, honing in which support pieces go where to support what core strategies overall. Um, with that, I do want to thank our Adapt Tier and Above patrons, uh, Marius and Adrian, before we go. And uh, everyone, thanks for listening. And see you next time on the 40 Card College Podcast.